what does it mean to regenerate? The reemergence of the concept of regeneration in our culture is a hot topic. From producers to products, legislation to certifications, celebrities to students, there's no shortage of passionate perspectives. Welcome to Regen Circle. I'm Paige Fay, and on this show, we're here to explore the reemergence of regenerative concepts and practices and their impact on ecosystems and culture. If you like what you hear, take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Welcome to the circle. So welcome to the show today. I'm here with James Arthur, one of the founders of Seatopia, a sustainable and regenerative seafood company that's really revolutionizing the way that we think about seafood and regenerative aquaculture. So James, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for taking the time to talk about this subject. Yeah, so I'd love to start with what is your definition of the term regenerative aquaculture? Because I think it's a term that not that many people have probably heard of. Well, we'll just start with the word regenerative and then we can dive into aquaculture for people <laughs> okay. who don't know what that is. But regenerative to me, um, in the sense of it being as a verb, right, is really the action. So what are we doing to create a net positive impact on the environment? When, we, when I think about uh, cultivating seafood or growing seafood, uh, it's very different than extracting seafood. So if we are going out and catching seafood, we are selectively taking fish or uh, indiscriminately taking fish. Either way, we're simply taking. Whereas if we set up a system that has the ability to have a net positive impact on biodiversity, on water quality, then I think of that as regenerative. And aquaculture is simply the practice of growing living organisms in the ocean. It could be fish, it could be shellfish, it could be algae, um, it could be for uh, food, it also could be for medicinal uses. The term aquaculture covers all of those areas. So regenerative aquaculture is growing, um, in this case, seafood in the ocean and thinking about the net positive impact of our relationship with the ocean. Thank you. And how did you find yourself getting into regenerative aquaculture? Have you been a, a water man your whole life? Like what was the, what was the draw to seafood specifically? The, my whole life I have been immersed in the ocean, save for a distracted couple of years pursuing sort of Wall Street adventures. But um, my father was a lifeguard. Um, some of my earliest memories are fishing, being in the ocean, being in the Sea of Cortez with him. Uh, my mother was a a photographer that worked at SeaWorld, so I had a lot of kind of behind-the-scenes access when I was really young, and and just the 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 incredible experiences of being up close to some like big marine mammals. Um, this was like Shamu uh, before we realized like how terrible it was, but just being there and ha as a kid, it was so inspiring to me, and that set me on a journey to working at an aquarium where I was introduced to somebody who explained what aquaculture was and painted a really beautiful story of the potential of regenerative aquaculture. And so I want to kind of dive into, because I don't know how many years ago it was, but at some point the world decided that wild seafood was the way to go, that it was the best possible thing out there. And, yeah. and, and generally farm seafood got a bad rap. Um, can you talk a little bit about the difference between wild and farmed traditionally sure. and maybe why it got that bad reputation? Well, I don't think there was a time when we decided that wild seafood was the best thing. I think wild seafood was always the best thing. You know, we came from the ocean. We evolved from the ocean. We are innately connected to the ocean. And we, most of us, 
have a biological sort of affinity for seafood. It works well for a lot of people. Um, unfortunately, uh, we've treated the ocean as a dumping ground for industrial pollutants, for fertilizers, uh, for just a myriad of, of chemicals, pollutants, and the net result is that fish, shellfish um, are like sponges just absorbing everything, right? So now we're seeing, unfortunately, uh, increased levels of mercury in the upper oceans oh, that have increased over 300% since the Industrial Revolution. We're seeing levels of microplastics detected in like the majority of fish now in all parts of the ocean because all parts of the ocean are connected. So we've sort of tainted the ocean without considering how do we remediate these or, or mitigate or just change our relationship. At the same time, the population has grown so much and we've extracted so much from the ocean, there's still such a demand. In fact, the growing middle class has put more uh, demand on seafood with a finite supply that is, that is being overpressured. So there's simply not as much seafood in the ocean as there was before. There's um, a problem now with over-extracting, with uh, over polluting and aquaculture is evolving in a way to mitigate pressure and create cleaner solutions. And when we think about sort of the general um, assumptions around seafood, I would say that there is a stigma that is associated with factory farmed fish. It's the same stigma that dually is uh, attributed to factory farm chicken and factory farm beef. And if we look at the aquaculture industry, which is frankly quite new, if, uh, if we think about how long we've been farming the ocean, that the first salmon farms you know, were in my lifetime, you know, or, or just prior, whereas we've been farming on land quite a bit longer. We've, been, we've learned how to breed and selective breed and uh, crop rotation, all these things in on land, we've been doing this much longer. In the ocean, some of the first large-scale aquaculture projects were funded directly from large-scale monoculture and agriculture businesses, and they took their exact same business model and applied it to aquaculture. And they got a similar result. They created a lot of monoculture businesses that mitigate risk with uh, antibiotics and maximize yields with growth hormones and crowding and uh, kind of sort of externalities on the uh, net impact on the environment. But that is one part of an industry that is evolving just like we've seen a myriad of different types of cattle farms and the evolution of our relationship with how we source beef has evolved where we've evolved as a, as a community of, of consumers from having a direct relationship to our farmers to sourcing through grocery stores to realizing that perhaps the grocery stores weren't asking deep enough questions. So to asking our own uh, farmers markets and farmers how to get it and what was in the feed and who, when it was slaughtered and how it was slaughtered, how it was brought to us. And these questions evolved at the market. The same thing is happening in aquaculture. As the industry has matured, as consumers have asked for more, 
a lot of the projects that were pilot projects, not commercial scale, are now being grown and commercialized to produce things that are more in line with what we're looking for in permaculture environment. So aquaculture is evolving right now um, in the same way that maybe the cattle industry was 20 years ago in response to deeper questions from a more educated and thoughtful consumer. And so that brings us to, I, I want to tell the viewers a bit about Zootopia itself and, and what you all offer to the consumer and, and how you're maybe different than what's been on the market to date. Maybe to go a little deeper onto like the evolution of seafood, and, and I would say that we're sort of in like what I call fish feed 3.0. Fish feed 1.0, the very first farms, they took the same feed that, let's look at salmon as an example. And there's a lot of different types of fish that are being farmed, but with salmon as an example, they took uh, locally caught sardines, anchovies, mackerel, ground them up and made them into a pellet and fed that. Uh, at, in different ratios of fats to oils and proteins, depending on the life cycle. And they fed that directly to those salmon and got very similar, um, they got very similar nutritional value to a wild caught salmon. The problem is you're not necessarily mitigating pressure on wild stock populations if you're still feeding them wild fish. So phase one fish, meal 1.0 was ground up bait fish or forage fish. And you see a lot of studies that uh, purport that farmed seafood has higher concentrations of PCBs than uh, wild caught fish. And those, the dates of all of those uh, reports are tied to fish meal 1.0, which is in the 1990s. And most of those um, increased level species was a matter of grinding up wild bait fish and having a concentration of that in the feed. The FAO and a couple other organizations made a request, a mandate, a, uh, a goal for the aquaculture industry, which most scientists acknowledge is necessary for us to feed the growing population. They made a request that uh, the industry as a whole reduce its dependency on forage fish because that's a unsustainable practice. So the industry evolved for the most part, most of the uh, large players uh, went to the uh, fish meal 2.0 essentially, which was reducing dependency on bait fish and instead supplementing with other forms of proteins and fats or oils. And the most cheapest, cheaply available sources of commodity oils and proteins is soy protein and canola oil. And that is where you see uh, sort of the middle market um, availability of a lot of fish being sold today, which is you know sold in grocery stores and whatnot. And it's very inexpensive. It looks pretty, but the nutritional value might be different because the omega-3 to omega-6 levels are very different when you feed something soy and corn versus feeding them the original feeds that had the omega-3s from the sardines and anchovies. Um, that's sort of commodity fish, and that's a lot of the production today. Fish meal 3.0, which is what Zetopia is really focused on, is aligning the omega-3 to omega-6 ratios, not using uh, soy and corn, not using 
um, bait fish, but 3.0 is, is replacing those for the core base levels of omega-3s from algae. Because mm -hmm. fish don't actually get, they don't produce their own omega-3s. With very, very few exceptions, fish actually bioaccumulate omega-3s from the environment, generally from something that they ate that before that ate the plankton, the zooplankton, um, and those omega-3s from the algaes, those are bioaccumulating into the fish. So we're at this really interesting time in the evolution of the aquaculture industry where large-scale algae production, the production of, um, of microalgae for uh, fish oil is uh, the prices are becoming affordable, especially um, since COVID. We actually saw an increase in, in the cost to produce uh, fish oil, and um, we're seeing uh, mass adoption through the economies of scale that are happening with algae-based oils. And this is really good because this is sort of like the beef industry going from corn-fed to grass-fed and pasture-raised. And you're getting a healthier diet that is more aligned with what our bodies want and what the bodies of the animals want. So if you feed fish corn and soy, they actually get inflammation just like you and me. And that inflammation means they're higher, they're more likely to get sick and then potentially you have to give them antibiotics. You give them a healthy diet and they're more resilient to begin with and it results in a better uh, outcome for everybody. So. Um, algae-based oils and alternative proteins, things like soldier flies. So um, there, are, there is a whole evolution in developing proteins that are more aligned with the, the nutritional value that the fish need that is much more interesting than soy. So this is where we're at today is, is fish meal 3.0, fish 3.0 kind of right. phase. And Seatopia is really dedicated to fostering uh, these artisan farms. You know, there's there's no marine biologist in the industry today who got out of college and was like, I'm going to build a commodity aquaculture farm and feed them crap and make a billion dollars. Every aquaculture uh, focused marine biologist got in this industry because they believe in the potential of aquaculture to mimic the natural systems that the ocean has, to, to really learn from nature and, and to build abundance in the same way that the oceans were, you know, the only thing stopping it has been that there hasn't, the biggest uh, inhibitor has been market forces. There hasn't been demand. There has been a commoditized system that only placed value on lowering the price of production, and increasing the volume of production. Because if you are working at a, if you own a farm and you are focused on growing the best fish or shellfish or seaweed, are you also selling those products or are you selling to a distributor? And what are the distributors asking for? And if the distributors are then selling to another reseller who then sells to another retailer, these layers of resellers are commoditizing the product and not necessarily putting the same values that the consumer wants. Right. The value goes to all of those middlemen and the storytelling doesn't necessarily come through of, of what the story of the product was and, and how it came to be. It's it's so interesting how many parallels there are between aquaculture and the growth of that industry and the cattle industry. And it's 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 fantastic to see that aquaculture is already moving in this direction, maybe in parallel to 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 the livestock industry, even though it's maybe more more nascent in terms of 
in terms of timeline. I'm, I'm curious to, it might be a little in the weeds, but in terms of what fish food 3.0 is versus a wild caught fish's diet, I'm imagining that's going to be very different depending on the, the type of fish and the location. And I'm guessing it's how different is that sort of like native diet to maybe fish food 3.0? And also how is, what's the difference on the environmental impact in terms of um, a fish that's in the wild and, and, you know, how much of a heavy load their natural diet would be versus a fish that's maybe consuming algae and, and some of these other alternative proteins? Yeah. It's difficult to generalize what a wild caught fish is eating when they're exposed to so many different things. Like there's this um, assumption that salmon are always pink, right? And it's based on their diet. But there's an entire river system in the Pacific Northwest called the White Salmon River, right? It's because salmon in that region were regularly exposed to different foods that were not high in, in elements that caused it to turn red. Generally, that astaxanthin that's rich in, in like the the, sh the shrimp and, and the crustaceans that it's eating are gonna give that color red. So it really depends on the area, season, the rain. There's so many variables. Um, that said, one of the beautiful things about farming is that when you do it right and when you really focus on a clean, controlled environment and a clean, controlled feed, you get a clean and predictable outcome, right? If you go to dinner at a beautiful restaurant in New York City and you see squab on the menu, you think, okay, interesting. I, I want to order the squab. I don't really know too much about it. And you ask the chef, you know, where does this squab come from? He's going to say, well, it was farmed at such and such, blah, 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 blah. What is squab? Well, it's pigeon. Oh, oh, interesting. But I'll try it. The chef recommends it. If it was wild pigeon from New York City, you probably would second guess it. But the idea of wild fish is so beautiful and romantic. It's in our DNA. It's what we want. We want this connection to our source, to the ocean on this blue planet. We have to, however, at this juncture, while we are at this critical time of trying to figure out how to mitigate pressure on the ocean, and hopefully scale solutions to help remediate the ocean, we have to be really conscientious of where our fish are coming from. And if you don't want fish that have plastics in them and radiation from Fukushima or any myriad of other toxins that we are putting onto our, in our, you know, GMO pesticides that are then running down the Delta and into the food system. All of these things are being, sh are showing up in, in tests. So it's difficult to be specific about such a wide sure. range. Um, but I will reference um, some studies that came out of Norway recently, and we have to look at the dates of these sort of studies. When did they come out? One of the most recent studies that came out of Norway that looked at the nutritional value of farm-raised salmon in Norway over the last three years versus uh, wild salmon in that same region, which there's very few, but there are still some. They saw lower levels of PCBs and mercury and higher omega-3 levels as compared to the wild-caught species. And so in that isolated study, you are comparing fish that were foraging that in that region to fish that were in a controlled environment fed a very specific diet, and they had more, better nutritional value. So 
that extrapolated extrapolated to how the interconnected oceans are, I today feel confident in saying if you want to feel confident in eating fish that is quantifiably low or lower on mercury levels and higher on omega-3s than what is probably available through other sources. Seatopia is one of the better sources. And we also have certificate analysis and everything to quantify that. But it, it, it really comes down to the individual farm, right? What are they choosing to value? What is important? Is it um, just to, you know, have the highest fat content? Is it to have the, the best nutritional value and balance um, or is it just low cost and color you know like there's all these different variables really depending on the the outcomes but the beautiful thing about farming when done right is that you can really create something beautiful you can have a predictable or relatively predictable outcome um, and you know if you also look at the evolution of land-based farming you know recirculating aquaculture systems, which are land-based closed loop systems that re that recycle all the water and filter all the water and reuse it again. Those systems are able to control almost every variable, you know, so there's, there's, there's so many variables, but, um, you know, Jacques Cousteau, uh, has this beautiful quote where he, he likens the evolution of the, the mark of civilization was the trans, uh, the, the, the evolution from hunters and gatherers to farmers and we need to do the same thing in the ocean to be good stewards we need to evolve from extracting to farming in the ocean the nuance is how do we farm right just like on land you know we're not still hunting buffalo there was a time when there was a a, a respectable job as a market hunter and market hunters went out and decimated the last of the buffalo and they brought a lot of that meat back to cities and others uh, was discarded bycatch or, or discarded, whatever. We're doing the same thing in, with seafood, but we're at this sort of 11th hour, right? Where keystone species, so many species are going extinct every single day, right under our noses. And a lot of it has to do with our ignorance and in how we're spending our money, where our food, you know, what our food is and, and not having enough, uh, take enough time to, to vote with our fork, I think. So um, I believe that, you know, our children are going to look at um, trophy fishing in the same way that we today look at like trophy hunting in the savannah, you know, like we don't condone i my family we're not gonna gonna condone hunting a lion just like i think con, we won't be condoning hunting giant marlin or giant bluefin tuna it is it is too late in the evolution we need to create a respite for this environment to um do what it does really well which is regenerate yeah but it needs space it needs time uh, and it needs to be protected in a way that will allow these migratory species to work, these interconnected bio, you know, these, these beautiful um, synergies that happen between shellfish and seaweeds and fish. They work together so beautifully when they're allowed to work. Yeah, when all the systems are in place. And it's, you know, I think it's this idea that, you know, we as humans, as a species, have this very unique ability to shape the earth to to move earth to to plant trees to farm you know where we are tenders of the earth and I, we have this really 
unique opportunity that we've maybe been been using in the wrong way to say, oh, well, we have this ability to extract and pull from, but we also have the ability to help shape and rejuvenate whole ecosystems. And I, I think a big part of the awareness of that does come down to education. And I remember in a discussion you had with, with someone else who had mentioned, you know, farm tours are becoming so popular now, you know, like people are going to farms and, yeah. and people are homesteading and like that doesn't necessarily happen in the in the aquaculture industry. And I had this moment when you said that where I was like, wow, you know, if I take out of my head what I think a fish farm might look like and I can imagine how beautiful it might be in my love for the ocean, I was like, gosh, I, I might love going to a regenerative aquaculture farm more. What might that look like or what might that experience be? Or is that is that happening? Absolutely it's happening. It is amazing. It's the most beautiful experience to bring people to swim with their fish. I mean, some of the most like inspiring, beautiful moments that, that you see in like Pinterest or Instagram of people swimming the ocean is when they're surrounded by a bunch of fish in a huge school of fish. Well, you could have that experience at an aquaculture farm. You can literally swim surrounded by thousands of fish. That experience in crystal clear blue water, that experience is absolutely tenable if you find it interesting. We have done tours and we will be doing more tours and it is critically important for people to have that experience. You know, we need this, this out of sight, out of mind thing needs to evolve into like, I actually have a relationship to the blue planet, to the oceans. I actually appreciate eating seafood. I just want to do it responsibly. I know who my farmer is. I know how they farm. I know what they feed. I've swam in the waters. I've been to the bottom. I've seen the bottom, whether on scuba or if you want to free dive down there. These are the experiences that empower people to have an authentic connection to the blue planet that with that sort of tourism that you're talking about is absolutely happening. You know, there are farms from in Greece, there's farms in, in Mexico. Next next month, my wife and, and my daughter will be in Costa Rica visiting farms. And then the month after we'll be in Panama visiting farms. There are um, yeah, you have so come bring your family. It is the more the merrier. We need to open up this experience of of food tourism, farm tourism, to the aquaculture space in a way that celebrates the solutions, the solutionaries. Because not all farms, just like you don't want to tour some of those farms off the five freeway that smell like death from two miles away, you know? But that is one example of a factory farm. You keep going up until you get to Big Sur and you have these beautiful farms with an ocean view and those cattle are part of this regenerative solution, right? Done those farms, of course you want to visit them. It's the same example, right? With aquaculture, we, we, need, we should be aware of both and films like Seaspiracy have done a great job. They told a wonderful story of the doom and gloom. The solutions also need to be told, right? The yeah. biggest little farm story is a, is a beautiful story. The Beta La Palma is a great example of a regenerative farm that, um, that Dan Barber did a great TED talk about. You know, he talked about how they've, they're actually creating that positive impact on the environment. Those sort of storytellers, we need more of those. We need more people visiting farms and really celebrating the, the handful of farms that are, you know, in it for the good of the planet, for the blue planet, you know? Yeah. We're on the blue planet, we should figure out how to do 
ocean farming right. And it's going to take less than 5% of coastline to feed the world's needs of protein. So that was going to be like, that was going to be like one of my next questions for you, because I have done a little bit of work with um, different um, seaweed farmers and in, in the algae space and, um, you know, people that are doing, you know, shellfish and um, different things that, that grow really quickly and um, oysters and all of that. Yeah. But one of my questions was if, you know, if all 8 billion people on this planet had a Seatopia subscription, um, what would that look like? Would that actually be sustainable? Is it a scalable model in terms yeah. of like, you know, what would that scale look like and, and what would that the potential impact be on our oceans? It would be very disruptive to the current players in the industry who uh, run the, the supply chain for seafood, but it would revolutionize access to artisan farms, right? A distributed network of small holder farms that are that are creating product for their local uh, economies, for their local communities, uh, is absolutely scalable. Um, there is... If you look at a coral reef or a mangrove, or um, let's just look at those two examples, you have so much abundance in a very small area because you have all these interconnected relationships, right? The symbiotic relationships between the coral and the algae and the clownfish and the reef cleaners and everybody working together to harmoniously create this abundant ecosystem is the model of aquaculture that we believe should be scaled. You know, when we were talking to some people from uh, the, uh, the California uh, legislature and, and they're, you know, expressing concerns from the Coastal Commission and other people about aquaculture. And there is you know, there was a, there was a, a basically, the, the question was poised, well, what would you, what would, what would aquaculture look like to Cetopia? And we painted the picture that we absolutely need to scale multi-trophic aquaculture. And that would mean permits for finfish are only allowed when they are integrated with shellfish and seaweed farms. And that reliance, that integrated policy that mimics nature's policies would not only create a checks and balance on the load on the environment, like nitrates from finfish is one of the things that people are upset about. As long as you don't have, let's say you're feeding the fish something that is clean and sustainable, it's not pumping, you're not putting antibiotics in there, and you're introducing a species that is native to the region, and then you're surrounding that finfish farm with shellfish and kelp farms, you're gonna absorb and create the symbiotic relationship between the effluent of the fish and the nitrates that the kelp and the, and the seaweed and the uh, shellfish need. One of the challenges to scaling offshore kelp farms is that when you go offshore, there's not enough nutrients in the water. Well, how do you introduce nutrients to the water and do it in a way that is uh, scalable, controllable, in a controlled feed environment with predictable outcomes? I mean, a multi-trophic system seems to be a pretty good solution. And these pilot projects that are happening in other parts of the world, like in Mexico, in Peru, in 
Um, we're working with some really beautiful farms all around the world, from New Zealand mm. to Norway. California is is a few years behind, unfortunately, because of our version and understandable version. But it, it, this needs to evolve if we're going to feed the growing population. Yeah. And Definitely. from a food security standpoint, this sort of distributed network of feeding your local community with local solutions, retraining our, our local uh, fisheries or our local fishing communities to develop aquaculture systems. And I'm a big believer in seaweed farms and shellfish farms, but give me 10 consumers and put them around the table and put seaweed, shellfish, and sushi grade fish in front of them and they're gonna go for the fish, right? We need to figure out how to make these farms profitable and have a net impact, net positive impact on the environment. And the, the, the evolution from monoculture, the evolution from just seaweed and shellfish to integrated is the Seatopia vision for the future. And the Seatopia vision for the future is that if we do this right, we mitigate pressure we're also, by the way, every time that we deliver a box, we're helping plant just kelp forests, not kelp to be uh, harvested, just kelp to be to rebuild our kelp forests to help create um, healthy um, breeding grounds for for I mean the spawning grounds that kelp forests are super important for the ecosystem. These sort of uh, reforestation projects are really important as well because if we do this right we can give this sort of reprieve to the ocean and she is so incredibly resilient right marine protected areas have proven to be exceptionally resilient when we give them that space right and so I want to talk a little bit about that full spectrum and, and the profit piece that you specifically mentioned because one of the things that kind of blew me away having been in in the products world and the natural products world or sustainable products world for so long is that a lot of people will talk about the product, right? The part that the human is eating and hey, we've got that dialed in, but it will come shipped in plastic packaging and recyclable packaging that isn't really recyclable. Or there will be a lot of other um, elements about the way that that product was made that aren't in full integrity or alignment with the sustainable or even regenerative principles that the brand claims. And one of the things I was really impressed about when looking at Zootopia was I was like, wow, you know, this is recyclable product that it shipped in that's actually recyclable. And they're, wow, they found a way to to use bags that the fish go in that are compostable but don't biodegrade by the time it gets there. I'm, get, I'm guessing the freezing temp might help, but I don't know what the R&D looked like on that. And I'm sure. And, you know, and so one of the things when you look at that whole supply chain and then you're still spinning out a product that's 10 to $12 per serving, yeah. which is, you know, similar to like if I were to go buy the high quality salmon at Whole Foods, you know, cheaper in a lot of cases, sometimes depending. And so my question is sort of about as much as you're willing to share about, about profit, about the financial side of this equation and, and what that looks like for Seatopia. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because when we started Seatopia, um, the, the challenge was how do you do this with integrity? because the idea of selling fish that, so I was selling 
these, I was previously working with a farm in Mexico that was producing some of the best yellowtail in the world. And we, I realized what a, uh, a challenge it was to evolve the business if we didn't actually know who our customers were because we were selling to an importer who then sold to other distributors who then sold to other people and commoditized the product that didn't celebrate the farm. So there was no incentive to, look, we're gonna use new feed, we're using different fat practices. There was none of that, none of that made it to the end consumer. So there was no incentive to pay more for those improvements. So I started bringing our whole fresh fish to restaurants. And this was here in Southern California and some of these amazing farm-to-table restaurants in Southern California. These chefs were blown away by the quality. The, the chefs came and visited the farms. This connection evolved into consumers wanting Seatopia products. But a consumer doesn't know what to do with a whole fish. You know, most of our consumer base is, uh, is just using this throughout the week. They don't want a whole fish. They don't have room in their freezer. They don't want to break it down. You know, if you're a mom and you just want to like meal plan for the week, you just want everything individually portioned. And at the time I was like, I'm not going to use styrofoam. I'm not going to use plastics. How do we do this right? And it took a long time to find and source. And the truth is we've, uh, when we first launched with a product that was 100% compostable, we lost a lot of money. <laughs> can imagine. We, uh, we worked with an amazing, we still work with an amazing producer of vacuum sealed bags that, are, that has given us multiple different iterations of these bags over the years that the, the, you know, the first iteration uh, composted too quickly, you know, and in proximity to dry ice, it was losing its seal. And we actually had to evolve from that. And today we're actually not using that on all of our products. We can't, we're using some recyclable products. And that uh, is, is something that we want to improve on. You know, I'm, I'm not, I, when I started the business, I was like, we're not going to even ship the first box until we solve this. I've kind of evolved to more of like a Patagonia approach where it's like, they're going to transparently say, this is our road, this is our roadmap, this is where we're at, we need to improve it. So we're using those compostal bags on the IQF products that don't need to be vacuum sealed, uh, but the ones that are just flash frozen and, and vacuum sealed, that product is, that's a, now we've had to go back to just a recyclable bag. But the R&D on figuring out how to actually make that work is part of our growth strategy. We have to do it. And, and we, I do believe we've identified how to do it, but requires some machinery that we're not able to procure just yet. Yeah, I understand. <laughs> but it's, 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 a, it's very important to think about the supply chain of food, right? Like what is the net impact of the entire supply chain? Because to produce the best, most beautiful, sustainable seafood and then sell it like most um, other commoditized products through this supply chain that puts everything in styrofoam boxes and then plastic bags, like what's the point of calling it sustainable seafood if it's shipped in styrofoam? So, yeah, all of this is important. What's the point of shipping it on an airplane and have getting whole fresh fish if, you know, the carbon footprint of that airplane and all that, like whole fresh fish being distributed has a huge carbon footprint. And 
frozen fish has a much lower carbon footprint. So even though a lot of people wanted fresh fish, when we launched Zootopia, we decided to go with frozen fish because despite the education that requires, it's simply a more sustainable solution and offering whole fresh fish, just it, it, it's shipping whole fresh fish direct to consumer doesn't uh, compute. No, I can't even imagine the operations, supply chain logistics. And I think consumers are beginning to understand that frozen actually preserves nutrient integrity. Like a lot of the time, if I'm not shopping at the farmer's market, I'll get frozen vegetables to stir fry because they're probably had more nutrition at the time of frozen than something that's been sitting out for a really long time. And, you know, the same is true with fish. And so I think to your point, like it's that educational component and it's not always what it looks like. That's not always the truth. And, and how can we really start to celebrate these these brands and these products and that are building new systems and supply chains that allow us to eat in this abundant beautiful way you know something that i that i always tell people is i say you know eating this way or, or attempting to be a, a human that's living in a more regenerative way doesn't have to look like a lacking situation you know it doesn't have to look like beans and rice every single night you know and and to be able to have sashimi grade fish in your home and make beautiful homemade ceviche and feel like you're in integrity about that choice. I mean, I think that's so well worth the extra few dollars that you're going to spend on the product. It's probably cheaper than going out to eat a lower quality fish anyways. And I think that beginning to build that education and, and helping people understand and feel and experience that is, is the difference maker. Yeah, we do have to make different choices. And it's also worth noting that not everything works, right? You can't have it both ways. This is sort of like the slow food movement in a way, right? There are sacrifices. Like there is no tuna on our menu. I think tuna is a beautiful species. I've been to tuna farms. I've swam with them. I've been with wild tuna. It is one of the most revered, beautiful fish in the world. And eating beautiful sashimi grade tuna is a wonderful experience. The vitality that you can feel from that is, is palatable. But not all species are ideal for cultivation, right? We don't see cheetahs being farmed because their metabolism and whatnot, they just need incredible amounts of space. And their feed conversion ratio is very efficient because they're running around all the time. They're not resting. Tuna need to run all the time. And they're actually not cold-blooded creatures. They're actually warm-blooded creatures. So it takes about 20 pounds of feed to get them to grow one pound of meat. So you really, it, it's, it's just, it, there are compromises. Not everything is doable, but um, making the right decisions, I think is, is what we're trying to do through with the mission of Cetopia. And, and it is a slow path, right? I feel like we probably could have grown much quicker had we, and made more money had we sold some wild-caught seafood or sold some more commoditized products or offered tuna because there is farm tuna ranch tuna but i just i don't believe that it is something that we should be condoning because there's i mean we could get into it but tuna is not a species that i believe is an efficient use of our resources yeah no and that's an opportunity to, to educate as well you know why isn't tuna an option on the seafood box and, and that's an op opportunity to explain that you know i haven't had tuna in a long time and my friend had caught some and, and served it up as sashimi the other day and it was like the biggest treat yeah. ever it felt like a, a sacred moment and a gift you know because it was like such a rare 
a rare treat that someone had 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 gone and, and, yeah. and gotten themselves and um, some things are that way and you know yeah, I think they should be and they should be you know? I, I believe in a future where our kids should be able to uh, go fishing and the experience of spearfishing and selecting that fish um, and having a connection to hunting should be a part of our future our society where we know and have that visceral understanding that if we are going to be meat eaters, that we respect the lives of these creatures. But it should, in my vision, probably stop at recreational, at least for a long time, because that there, there's there's just too much industrial scale extraction right now, right? And that we're about to lose those opportunities to 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 catch our own, our own fish, you know? Like we we don't, everyone in, in North America shouldn't go out and hunt elk because there would be no elk left. We shouldn't all go out and hunt uh, salmon. There'd be no salmon. If we all only ate wild-caught salmon, we would deplete the entire population of wild-caught salmon in one season, you know, or, or less. There's, there, we have to evolve to protect those very sacred things mm -hmm. and we can't all ex you know we can't expect to eat tuna every single night also the mercury levels in tuna uh it's pretty clear that we uh especially as a, a if you're uh the, the data is really clear on like pregnancy and and mothers and it, they say you probably shouldn't eat it more than once a month you know like at, at, at the limit so those are the uh, the more nuanced things of like why we don't offer tuna is the mercury levels are really high and the uh, feed conversion ratios just don't make sense. Yeah. But it's a beautiful creature. Yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful every once in a while, you know, there's certain things and they, and they remind us and connect us to how ephemeral and short and beautiful and, and how special our relationship is to other species when we get to interact with them in that way and have those moments. And so James, as we wrap up here, I'd love to hear like, what is next for Cetopia? How can people support what you're doing and learn more, what's on the horizon for you all? Um, every day we're just like really basics, you know, we're just, we're just working to uh, create better connections between farmers and people who care. Uh, we're helping uh, bring better feed to the farms. We're trying to uh, help farmers afford to make the investments or give them the surety that they can, you know, transition their feed, transition their farming practices to, you know, using more expensive soldier fly larvae and integrating complexity into their farming systems. You know, the perceived uh, risks of introducing complexity going from a monoculture to a multitrophic integration is perceived complexity and is perceived risk. Um, but if we can celebrate those individual farms and really help build those farm brands and those farm connection, like I want to support XYZ Farm because as a family, as an individual, I went and visited that farm. That was part of my vacation last year and I got to meet those farmers and last year they just had steelhead, but now they have steelhead and mussels and kelp and I get to buy all these things from that specific farm. Those sort of... Um, long sort of slow brand building and story connection is 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 what we're doing with Cetopia. We're just trying to uh, 
bring more people to visit farms, get more people to uh, ask deeper questions, you know, get people into the ocean swimming yeah. and uh, learn about a more, uh, learn about the blue planet and all the beautiful creatures that are in it and, and how they all are interconnected. You know, these keystone species that are potentially going extinct if we're not at least aware of and, and, and fighting for them. So Seatopia uh, is really, you know, a, it's not one thing that we're doing, right? It's, we're trying to actually build a new supply chain, you know, and, and, and think about the net impact of that supply chain. And as I mentioned briefly, the, the kelp reforestation project is really like dear to my heart, you know, like I'm excited to be able to, to bring people to visit some of the places where we're planting kelp, you know, a thousand new kelp seedlings that are going into the water and the potential for, for of what that happens. Like, so these are things that, that we're focusing on over the next year. Um, we're hoping to, uh, yeah, just further that work. It's a slow iteration, but um, yeah, if people want to follow Seatopia on our socials and all that stuff, I think at Seatopia is is the handle and all that stuff. Um, yeah. Check out ctopia.fish is our <laughs> URL. You can get we'll link all that and I encourage everyone to get a subscription. I just re-upped mine today. Awesome. And, um, you know, thank you for the kelp bed work. You know, I grew up swimming off these California coasts, tying myself up to those kelp beds and they're the trees of the ocean. And yeah. they're, they're sacred wrapping in them and taking yeah. a nap, you yeah, know, floating like a little in sea them. Otter. <laughs> and so thank you for all of your work and helping yeah. to, to preserve that. I hope I get to come visit one of the, the regenerative aquaculture yeah. farms one of these days. Yeah, so. yeah. We'll have to coordinate some farm tours. Definitely. Thanks, James. Thanks for doing the work you're doing. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. If you liked what you heard, take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the show. And if you want to learn more about how to get involved with The Circle, visit us at our website or on social media. We're always looking for like-minded people to connect with.